We're going to turn now to God's Word, um, to Psalm 19. I'm not going to preach on this tonight, but it does pick up uh, a number of the things that we'll be picking up as we go through. Psalm 19, and reading from verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Just as a bit of an introduction to what we're thinking about tonight, we're going to watch a short video. It's um, by a guy called Professor John Lennox. He's an emeritus professor of mathematics at Oxford University. I just about got that right, I think. Um, and he's going to uh, just spend a couple of minutes answering the question, doesn't science explain everything. Sir Peter Medawar, who won the Nobel Prize and spent a lot of time in Oxford, he made the point. He said it's pretty obvious that science is limited since it can't answer the typical questions of a child. Where have I come from? What am I here for? What's the purpose of life? And he said it's outside science to literature, religion, philosophy that we have to look for answers to those questions. And we live in a world where there are very loud voices, strident voices saying, science is the only way to truth. And I want to point out that that simply is simply false. In order to illustrate the difference between the God explanation and the science explanation, I ask people to think of boiling water. Why is the water boiling? Well, because the Bunsen burner flame is heating the kettle, is agitating the molecules of water, that's why it's boiling. Really, is it? Actually, it's boiling because I'd like a cup of tea. And people laugh at that. And then they say, why are you laughing? Well, you're laughing because you see that those two explanations are perfectly valid. They don't compete, they don't conflict, they complement. And I often think of Isaac Newton when he discovered the law of gravity. 
He didn't say, now I've got gravity, I don't need God. What he said was, what a genius of a God that does it that way. And the more we understand of things like art or engineering, the more we admire the genius of the people that produced them. The fact that the pioneers of modern science, as we might call it, like Galileo, Kepler, Newton, uh, coming up to Clark Maxwell, were believers in God. I'm not sure how well known it is. And I find many school-level kids have never heard this. Because, of course, it means that far from belief in God hindering the rise of science, it was the motor that drove it. People believed in an ordered universe because they believed in a lawgiver behind it. In my case, and many other people's case, our worship for him increases the more we understand, not decreases. Our worship increases the more we understand, not decreases. Hold that thought. We're thinking tonight, can I really believe there is a God? Now, hopefully in a moment, a slide will appear on screen. It was there before the service. Um, we're going to try something tonight. We won't do this maybe every week in our question series. Depends how it goes tonight. Um, I am the guinea pig. But if you have any questions, there will be a, a little bit of time at the end for Q&A, for questions and answers. Um, not promising you any great or profound answers, but um, we're going to give it a go anyway. Um, you can ask questions from where you're sitting if you want to do that. Um, but if you don't want to do that, um, you can text them. I've realized I've left the phone up in the pulpit, but I'll, I'll go up and, and get it. Um, and, and you can ask if you wish. Um, tonight, I am indeed wearing my, my scientist hat, as it were. Um, Marty introduced me this morning as Dr. McCracken. Um, about a year ago, we were standing in the manse, and Marty said to me, I think I'm going to start calling you Dr. McCracken. And I said, well, if you start calling me Dr. McCracken, I'm going to start calling you the Reverend Gray. And he hasn't called me Dr. McCracken since, um, apart from today, and I suppose, I suppose that's fair enough. I want to begin tonight in a way that's maybe a little bit different, in that I'm going to talk a little bit about myself to begin, because I want you to know where I'm coming from on this debate. I think that's, that's only fair if I do that. My name is John, if you don't know. I'm 29 years old, and all my life, I would say, I have believed in God. That's not to say there haven't been challenges to that, not least some of the things that we're going to think about this evening, but I have always attended church and believed in God. We were a sort of stereotypical church family. Dad was an elder, mum was the organist. We went to everything, CE, BB, youth club, youth fellowship, you name it, we were at it. And even though I always believed, I suppose it was about the age of 15 or 16, when the penny actually dropped, I realized the significance of who Jesus was and what he has done, and that changed my life. And ultimately that's why I'm here but I am, as I say, also a scientist. I've always been interested in the way things work, why things are the way that they are. Um, I was looking back um, this week at my UCAS statement um, from when I applied to do chemistry at Queen's, and I wrote in that, that I find the way everything, the world, everything in the world around us works at a molecular level fascinating. 
And I remember a very cheeky um, physics teacher who was critiquing my personal statement said, well, you should go and study physics then, but he didn't win at the end of the day. I went off and I studied chemistry at Queen's, uh, followed up by a doctorate also at Queen's, and then I worked in research chemistry for a little while. Now, chemistry is the best science, let's face it. Biology, that's just chemistry in living things. Physics, I'm pretty sure the word physics is just short for physical chemistry. That is just sort of atomically how the chemistry works. Chemistry is also the funnest science, if, if funnest is a word, because there's always the chance something will explode or go on fire. Um, I used to walk into the David Kerr building over in Queens every morning, and I used to have to walk in through the School of Psychology. We shared the building with them. And these were the people who complained that we set the fire alarm off so much, and I always felt sorry for them for having to share the building with us. Now, what I did um, specifically, um, I won't get into the boring science of it in case you're not like me and enjoying of chemistry, but what I used to do is I used to get metal surfaces, I used to deposit a, a small layer of a noble metal on them and another molecule called an alkane thiol. Now, that's the end of the, the chemical talk. This specific combination produced something called a super hydrophobic surface, and I think I have a picture of a water droplet on a super hydrophobic surface. Now, I know you're thinking, that's a droplet of water. What, what's exciting about that? Well, the point is that the surface is so water resistant that the, the water doesn't want to be there, and that's why it's curved up in a perfect sphere. It has minimal contact with the surface because it just is so water repellent it doesn't want to be there. And if I tilted that surface even a fraction of a degree, the water droplet would roll off. And there were some guys um, in the States, Gowan and McCarthy, they actually developed a test for these types of surfaces, which showed that there is actually physically no contact at all between the water droplet on that surface and the surface itself. It's kind of just floating there um, on the air, which obviously means that you can play air hockey with water droplets on these surfaces. They're really cool and really fun, and there's absolutely no way that we were asked by Queens to take down a video from YouTube of us playing air hockey competitively on there, and um, that definitely didn't happen. But hopefully, I'm hoping the next slide's gonna work because it's a little video just to give you a bit of an idea of how water behaves on the surface. It doesn't seem to be working, that's okay. If it starts working at some stage, but essentially the water just won't stick to the surface at all, um, and it's really, really cool. And I, I used to um, have to, my job was basically to put this on lots of different things. I put it on clothing for probably fairly obvious reasons. I put it into heat exchangers to make them more efficient. I put it on fly fishing flies, believe it or not, because some, if you're into your fly fishing, you know if you'd want to do dry fly fishing, you want the fly to float on the surface forever. This coating, this did it, it was amazing. I put it on surfboards, I put it on boats, I put it on the inside of musical instruments. Oboes have a real issue, did you know, with the buildup of water inside, who knew? Um, we also had a thing going with um, a fairly well-known alcoholic drinks company, who I can't name for legal reasons, um, but basically they had a really old production line, and every now and then one of the bottles fell over, and then all of the other bottles smashed into it, and it was just a big mess everywhere, and we were able to put a coating on this, and it meant that they were able to clean it up much more quickly because the liquid just flew off. Enough about what I did, but I just want to give you a little bit of a flavor and a little bit of an idea of what I used to spend my days doing. It was really fun. We put it on the inside of pipes to make water flow through faster. We, we did lots of different things. And within my area, within my little office that I worked in, there were maybe about eight people. 
And using the same basic science, these people were doing everything from uh, analyzing the purity of water, um, anti-cancer research. There was one girl who was doing basically the same stuff, but on gold nanoparticles that she was putting into lung cancer cells. And she was able to selectively kill lung cancer cells. Um, and that, that's potentially very big, actually, because if you know anybody or if you yourself have been through chemo, you know you get sick when you go through chemotherapy because the chemotherapy doesn't just attack the cancer, it attacks all your other healthy cells as well. This only got the cancer cells. So th lots of really exciting stuff going on. And I hope that I've demonstrated my excitement to you about it all. I used to, I loved my job, I loved what I did. So that's where I come from. I believe in God and I'm a scientist. And so I suppose I'm, I'm in the same vein as, as John Lennox, the guy that we watched in the video there, that the two coexist. In my mind at least there isn't an issue with that, but I realize that some issues can sometimes come up. So what I want to do tonight is to explore the idea that somebody who takes seriously the evidence in the world around them really can believe in God and know him personally. Now in that office of eight people that I mentioned, there was one fairly ardent atheist, there was me, and there were a couple of girls who were Roman Catholics who'd sort of lapsed a bit. But most of the other people in there, and, and including the lapsed Roman Catholics, they believed that they were open to some sort of possibility of there being a God. It, it, it didn't, in their minds, run counteractive to science. And I think sometimes that's a, that's a bit of a myth that's out there. It's true for some people, but it's not true for all scientists. So what we're gonna to do tonight, um, I hope, is that firstly we're going to explore some of that science and see whether it is possible to hold these two things together, science and belief in God. Secondly, after we do that, um, I want to think a little bit about the first chapter of Genesis because if we're going to believe in science and believe in God, then I suppose at some point we have to deal with Genesis chapter 1, don't we? And I'm only going to do that very briefly. And then finally, and only if we have time, um, if we're convinced that, that there's a creator God, that science points to him, well then, can we know him? Is he still about, does he still care when we look to the world around us and all that's wrong with it, with war and sickness and COVID and everything? Can we really still, looking at all that, believe in God? Um, and I'll be amazed if we get through all that, but um, we might have to leave that last bit out, but that's okay. So firstly, I want to point, I want to argue that science points us to a creator. Science points us to a creator. Sometimes this idea is called intelligent design. So in other words, the universe is designed in such a way that, that is so intelligent that it is difficult to conclude that it could have happened just by chance. And it's much more likely that something or someone with great intelligence, with knowledge of all that is needed to make the universe work, had a part to play. Intelligent design isn't something that only Christians argue for. Um, other people who aren't atheists will also argue for this because it does seem to make a lot of sense. I was looking up during the week and the charity Humanists UK, it's a charity which exists to further humanism, funnily enough, which is atheistic, an atheistic life stance centered on human agency, looking to science rather than revelation from a supernatural source to understand the world. That's a quote, by the way. And they say that what they campaign for is, and here's another quote, a tolerant world where rational thinking and kindness prevail. Rational thinking. 
Atheism wants to tell us that it's, it's rational to be an atheist, that it's irrational to believe in God. So let's see about that. The author Terry Pratchett once famously said, in the beginning, there was nothing which exploded. Does that sound particularly logical? Well, well no, of course, it, of course it doesn't, and no scientist even would say that, but in the beginning was nothing which exploded. Again, laying my stall out, uh, I'm with John Lennox in the video we watched a few moments ago, that science can't explain the questions of a child. Something exploded at the beginning. What exploded? Well, a scientist wouldn't answer like Terry Pratchett. A scientist wouldn't say, well, nothing exploded. They'd talk about different subatomic particles which came together, some sort of cosmic dust, and the energetics involved when these things came together in just the right conditions caused that explosion. But where did those particles come from, a child would ask. Why were the conditions just right? Why were these things anywhere near each other? Where did they, how did they get there? Now, even if we were to accept the Big Bang Theory, and obviously many Christians don't, and I'm not getting into that now, you might want to ask me about it in the Q&A afterwards if you're brave, but even if we did accept it, we have to realize that science cannot answer the, the hows, the whys. The question, well, where did, where did that come from? That even a child would ask. And I think an increasing number of scientists are actually coming to that realization today. I was looking up during the week um, a guy called Marcello Geisler. Now, he won the Templeton Prize for physics last year. Um, you might not have heard of that if you're not into science. It's, it, it's basically, it's not quite the Nobel Prize, but it's the best, next best thing. It's worth about $1.5 million to whoever wins it. And this guy was being interviewed after he won the prize, and the reporter was really surprised that this guy wasn't an atheist. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but he wasn't an atheist either. And this is what he said. I honestly think atheism is inconsistent with the scientific method. And he goes on to say that scientists actually have no right to be atheists at all. There's no evidence that proves God doesn't exist. Again, he's not a Christian, but I find it really interesting that as he looks at these questions of origin, of where we come from, whilst he doesn't believe that science proves God's existence, he says it's just not logical to be an atheist. It's not scientific. Science can't provide the answers of where everything came from. If you do believe that everything came from nothing, that in the beginning was nothing that exploded, well then you have a lot more faith than I do. But I think that science actually points us to something different. I believe that there is a complexity in the universe which points us to the fact that there is a creator who very carefully and very intelligently made everything the way it is. We just read a few moments ago, the heavens declare the glory of God. The things that are created, they don't speak, but they tell us that there is a creator. We'll sing in a little while, by faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design. It's known as intelligent design. Here are some things about the universe around us, and I've taken some of these things from an article by Marilyn Adamson. About the earth, well, the size is just perfect. The Earth's size and corresponding gravity holds a thin layer of mostly nitrogen and oxygen, which extends 50 miles above the Earth's surface. If the Earth were any smaller, we couldn't have an atmosphere. And if it were any bigger, it would contain free hydrogen, which would mean, essentially, we couldn't survive. Earth is the only known planet equipped with an atmosphere with the right gases to sustain plant 
and animal and human life. The earth is also just the right distance away from the sun. Here's a little analogy for you. If the sun were at your front door, then the earth would be about the size of a 20p piece. If the earth was any further away from the sun, and we're talking like 0.1% of the distance that it is away from the sun, if it were any further away, it would freeze. And any closer, the atmosphere would burn up. Even a fractional change in the distance that it is would mean that life would be impossible. It's the perfect distance away and it rotates around on its axis at a speed of nearly 67,000 miles an hour. And if it were to tilt any into any sort of different angle than that, it would spin out of control. The moon is the perfect size for gravitational pull so that it doesn't just come down crashing into the earth, but it also is close enough to create ocean tides which by and large stop ocean waters from stagnating and also from just covering over our land. Water itself, it, it, it seems like a very unremarkable compound, doesn't it? Colorless, odorless, not much taste to it. But none of us can survive without it. Plants and animals were mostly made up of water, in fact. And the properties of water allow life. The large difference between the freezing point and the boiling point means that life can be sustained in all kinds of areas in the world. It's a brilliant solvent. It brings us most of the nutrients that we need. It's chemically neutral. It has a unique surface tension, if you're in the surface tension, which means that water can be drawn upwards in plants against gravity. And about 97% of the Earth's water is in the oceans, but our Earth has a really intelligent system whereby this water can evaporate off without taking any of the salt with it. And then it's blown along fairly easily by winds and falls elsewhere and allows us to produce vegetation, allows us to drink. It's a, it's a self-contained purification system. It is so, so smart. What about your brain? It takes in all of the information around you. I didn't believe this when I read this this week, but apparently it's true. Your brain processes more than a million messages per second. Your brain weighs up all the, all the different things going around you. It allows you to focus on what you're doing, but at the same time, it's monitoring things like your breathing and the amount of moisture in your mouth if your mouth gets dry. It functions differently to other organs. It, it's intelligent. It allows us to have feelings, to be conscious, to have emotions, to relate to others. That's not really something that science can ever explain. Now, all of this I think, points to a creator, to intelligence in the way that we were designed. Now, Christians have often through history used the analogy of a God who is a watchmaker, a watchmaker. The idea is that the intricacy of the world around us is like all those little screws and cogs going around inside a watch. All of those cogs and screws and little fiddly bits. If a small bit's missing, the, the clock might work, but it'll probably run out of time. It won't work properly. And eventually the clock will be useless because it will just be showing you completely the wrong time. And if a large piece is missing, well, obviously the thing won't work at all. And our universe is like that. Everything, everything about the way the earth is, about the way the water system works, about the way our brain is, everything is just right. And if it isn't, if it wasn't right, it would be disastrous. The universe wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be here. And surely that points to a watchmaker, a creator. Now in 1986, 
Richard Dawkins wrote a book in response to this analogy, and it's called The Blind Watchmaker. Interestingly, um, what he does in the book, he doesn't actually really set about to disprove intelligent design because he can't really do that. But instead, he puts forward what he sees as the alternative. He uses the analogy of a bat, a bat's eye, in fact. And he, he talks about how random mutations will allow it to evolve and evolve in a progressive way so that it can see better, simply through mutation and natural selection. Now, I have some concerns about his logic. I mean, a bat's eye is pretty much blind. It's fairly useless. So there would actually be a, a wide range of mutations available that would improve the sight because you couldn't do much to make it worse, whether that's focus or color vision or, or depth perception or, or whatever it is. So that means that the bat's eye could have evolved in numerous directions, but it didn't. It evolved in one way. In fact, Evolution, generally, evolutionists will argue, is, is fairly linear. There are some branches that come out, but generally it's a linear process because of natural selection, they would say. Yes, there are some branches where one species allegedly evolves in a few directions, but there's a large number of favorable mutations available. Well, if that's the case, then we really should see much more diversity in evolution than we actually do. Now, an evolutionary scientist would, would answer that and say, well, you know, yes, there are lots of favorable mutations, but only a small number of them are actually, at the end of the day, essential for a species' survival, and it's those ones which last in the long term. But I'm not sure that that is logically viable, actually. If something is favorable at all, then it's favorable for survival. So I, I'm not sure that the linear and directional nature of evolution can be explained with only science. So either it's rubbish, or it was guided by a creator, but on its own, it makes no sense. However, let's assume for a moment, I want us to assume for a moment that Dawkins is right. After all, some of the science that underpins evolution is undeniable. I mean, if you look around this room, we don't all look the same. That has been caused at some point in previous generations by natural selection and indeed by genetic mutations. That's why we look different. But if we say that he's right, well, what about the very beginning, as far as Dawkins is concerned, at least? It's 3.8 billion years ago. The Earth has just got cool enough to support life after the Big Bang and the Earth's formation and, and, it, and it's cooling down. The Big Bang, he would say, was 14 million years ago. It's taken over 10 million, billion years sorry, for the Earth to form and cool down such that any life can exist at all. And that life is only single bacterial cells. Now the story is that those single bacteria replicate themselves and replicate themselves and replicate themselves and there are genetic mutations which over 3.6 billion of those 3.8 billion years along with some natural selection gets us to the modern human being. Now as evolution progresses things get more complex. We're more intelligent than other animals. We're more complex. Animals are more complex than bacteria. And that's because of the development of evolution. Things get more complex. It makes sense. But the problem is for any of this to happen in the first place, these bacteria in the first place have to be able to replicate themselves. That, that's, that goes without saying nearly. They have to be able to reproduce, to replicate themselves. And the problem with this is that even in a single bacterial cell, that is an incredibly complex process. These bacteria, not terribly unlike us, 
have a genetic code. They have double-stranded DNA, just like us. And that is incredibly complicated. It's incredibly complicated. And in order to replicate themselves, uh, this bacteria must find a way to unravel its own DNA, to read its own DNA, to match up a complementary pair of bases, and for this then to detach itself and the DNA to recoil, and for the complementary strand to match up with another one to make new DNA. Now, I'm sorry if that was gobbledygook to some of you, but that is how our cells replicate themselves and, and reproduce themselves. So if you don't know much about that, don't worry about it, but the reason why it sounded complicated is because it is. It is complicated. It happens in every living cell, even in those little simple bacteria, and it's complex. And so for evolution, according to Dawkins to work, this simplest little bacterial cell has to contain complex biological material within it, and also have to the ability to re reproduce that material, which is one of the most complex biological procedures in existence. So far from going from simple to complicated, for evolution to work, you have to have basically the most complicated thing you could have available at the very start. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't fit with the narrative of evolution going from simple to complex. But as well as that, it's just downright unlikely. We had Professor John Lennox um, on a moment ago, and he's a mathematician by trade. And if you watch him, you can go online and watch him talk about this. He will tell you that statistically, it's not even improbable. It's just impossible. Evolution from a single bacteria to humanity supposedly took 13.6 billion years. But in just 0.2 billion years from the Earth being cool enough to these first bacteria coming as we know them, these atoms somehow came together in the most complex way imaginable to produce these really complex micromolecules which weren't just in existence but able to replicate themselves, which is a really complex process. So that leads us, I think, to one of two conclusions. Either evolution is rubbish and untrue and false, and that some intelligent being created everything sort of instantly, or evolution did happen, but it was guided by someone who was intelligent, by God. In the beginning was the word John Lennox would say, and then all things derive from there. That's why it's complicated in the beginning. Now, it's not my intention tonight to get into all of that. I've already got into more of it than I thought I would, but the point that I am making is that either way round, the complexities of cells replicating themselves and mutating does not make sense without intelligent design, without God, without a God either doing it instantly or without a God guiding evolution. There has to be a God. Now, Dawkins can't explain this and his response actually is quite weak. He says this at the end of his book, The Blind Watchmaker. He, he considers the idea of a God, and he says, a God capable of engineering all the organized complexity in the world, either instantly or by guiding evolution, must already have been very complex in the first place. And we would say, yes, that's true. God is very complex. And he calls this postulating organized complexity without offering an explanation. In other words, he says, you're, you're saying something complicated um, originated or some, something complicated was there in the beginning, but you're not saying why. In other words, yes, it might actually make sense that there was intelligent design. It's actually, he actually pretty much admits that. But because we can't explain God, because we can't explain how this complexity is, is put into these cells by God, Dawkins can't accept it. 
And he says this again in his 2006 book, The God Delusion, it's very, it was a very popular book at the time. He says, well, you know, if there is intelligent design, all that does is it shifts the question further up the chain from the bacteria to God. And he says, well, if all this complexity came from God, where did God get it from? How can we explain his complexity? And because he can't explain that, he rejects it. And the point is really for Christians at that point, we want to say, great, because we know that we can't explain God's complexity. We're quite comfortable with that, actually. He's the creator, we're creatures, we can't know all about him, we can't know how he operates. But what you end up with is an argument from Richard Dawkins that's actually quite weak, I think. He can't deny intelligent design. Instead, he can only put forward his own kind of model and say, well, no, this is actually how things evolve. But even within that, he can't rule out the possibility of an intelligent design and that's because he rejects God from the outset. That, that's why he does it. But he can't say that intelligence doesn't exist within natural systems. So I'm later than I thought I would be. But I hope I've convinced you or at least given you plenty of food for thought that, that scientific theories, e even the way the world works in terms of the laws of physics, scientists will happily say, yeah, the laws of physics, they're great, that everything operates within the laws of physics, that's wonderful, but they can't say why. They can't say where that comes from. It all points to an intelligent creator. It's just so ridiculously unlikely that life on earth could exist from these theories alone without a God. The chances are so low. So low. Earlier this year, um, a very prominent Swedish scientist remarked that the earth is a one in 700 quintillion kind of place. One in 700 quintillion. He did, he did the maths. A quintillion, by the way, has 20 zeros on the end of it. And he just said, look, he, he was talking about how amazing this is. One in 700 quintillion. Isn't that amazing that we exist? And it's just so unlikely. But even if we do accept intelligent design, many people will round on us as Christians and, and other religions as well because they'll point to Genesis chapter 1. The earth created in six days, and they'll say, well, look, I could never believe in your version of God because we have all this evidence, and you say that the earth was created in six days. I just can't square that up. Let's face it. The Big Bang Theory does have its positives. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not being drawn either way. If you're really brave, you can ask me in the Q&A. I want to try and leave you something for the Q&A. But it has its positives. We can observe that the universe is expanding. That makes sense if it began with an explosion because an explosion in empty space is just gonna keep going and going and going. The universe is expanding. And there are many other things that the theory helps explain why some planets are the way that they are and lots of other things. So even though it's hard to see it happening without a creator, it's impossible, I think, for it to have happened by chance. The theory from a scientist's point of view, well, it seems to stand up. So what about it? Well, I personally don't think that science and Genesis 1 have to be mortal enemies. And I don't have time to cover all of this tonight, but I just want to point out a few things about Genesis 1 so that we can see the purpose of it, which I don't think we have always gotten right as Christians. Now, the first thing is this. Genesis 1 is a poem. Now that doesn't mean that we can just twist it and make it mean whatever we want it to mean, but it is a poem. 
From chapter 2 and verse 4, Genesis is a narrative. It's like what we read from Daniel this morning, if you were here. It tells events that happened to people at specific times in specific places in a very straightforward way. But from the start of chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3, it's a poem. Now, that's really obvious in the Hebrew, but we can actually still see it in the English translation. Repeated phrases, verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26, all start in the same way. And God said, no variation whatsoever. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And so on, through all six days. There are repeated phrases. We can see that it is poetic. That doesn't mean that it isn't true or that it isn't literally true. But if we're going to understand it, we might want to think about why it was written as a poem. The second thing is this. The language in Genesis 1 is actually quite ambiguous. The word for day is the Hebrew word yom, which could be translated as day, but it could also be translated as age. And you'll see it translated that way, and particularly in the prophets, uh, in some, somewhere like Isaiah, where it talks about the coming age. That's the word that is used, and it'll be translated in any biblical translation as age. The language is ambiguous, and I think that is intentional. Now, some people try to do really complicated things and try to work out six ages then and try and fit the big bang and evolution against that. I don't think that's the right thing to do either. I think we're right to translate it as day, but I think that the use of that word, the choice of that word, is intentionally ambiguous. I don't think that the author meant to communicate a literal 144 hours of creation. The third thing is that, is that there are big parallels between the first three days of creation and the second three days of creation, between days one, two, and three, and four, five, and six. Let me go over them very, very quickly. Day one, God says, let there be light. Day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars, the things that give light. On day two, he separates the sky and the sea. On day four, he creates the things that live in the sky and the sea. Day three, he creates land. He separates out the sea to make land. And on day six, he makes the creatures who live on the land, such as humanity. Now, does it make sense that on day one, God would say, let there be light, but on day four, he would create the sun? Or maybe are these things describing something in a poetic way? Now, I know, I, I do happen to know that some of you here tonight are fairly ardent and militant believers in a literal six-day creation account, that you read Genesis 1 as on the first day, on the second day, on the third day, and that's the end of the discussion. And let me say this, I think that's fair enough. I think you might well be right. God rested on, on the seventh day then, obviously. That's why I'm talking about a six-day creation. When you look at the rest of the Bible, for example, and how other believers, particularly the apostles in the book of Acts, talk about the God who created the sea and the land, they say that he did it in six days. And there's no ambiguity in the language in, in the Greek, it's different. It just says six days. So I think you have a lot of support for that position and I'm not trying to attack you by saying any of this tonight. But I do think that some of this, these poetic things that I've pointed out, the ambiguous language, the repetition, the parallels between days one to three and four to six, that has to mean something as well. There has to be a reason that the text has been given to us in this way. And for what it's worth, here's my take. I don't know how long it took. 
I do not know how long it took. And to be frank, God exists outside of time. He isn't constrained by time in the way that we are. So I actually don't think it's particularly important how long it took. Now tell that to people who want to argue about it, but I don't think it's particularly important. I don't think that is the intention of the author of Genesis chapter one. I think the reason that it's been given to us in this way is just representative of the fact that we cannot understand God, how he operates, how his creative power works. We can't access that knowledge. Poetically, we can describe it. Scientifically, we can observe it. We can observe things about it and comment on it. But that is all. Genesis describes creation in a very poetic way. And it says that God created everything. And it talks of the things he created. But it isn't a science textbook, I don't think. I don't think it is meant to be. It's not interested really in the how he did it. It just says what he did. It doesn't say how. And so in my view, and I'm going to conclude now, I'm not going to do the third bit because I do want to leave time for some questions. But in my view, all of that intelligent design stuff that that science points to the existence of God the creator and that Genesis speaks poetically of the work of God the creator. And I think that's the purpose of Genesis 1 to tell us that the earth was created by God, not necessarily how. I don't think the two are in conflict. Now that's not to say that I accept all that science has to say, particularly with respect to evolution, because that gives us other theological problems as well, I think, as some of the logical ones that I have briefly tried to point out. But nonetheless, I think you can be a scientist and believe in the Genesis account without just dismissing science, whether it has been properly put forward by science or not. I have one question here, um, but I'm willing to open the questions to the floor if anybody has a burning question that they want to ask. I can see you're all bursting. Yes, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you talked about uh, sort of either intelligent creation or design Sure. So if, you, if you're at the back and you didn't hear that, also, I'll just also repeat it, give me a bit of time to think about it. Um, but if the argument is for intelligent design and, the, and that God either instantly um, created us some way, the way that we are, or that he directed evolution, then, then why do we have imperfection, something like our appendix, which um, seems to have no sort of, no function or no use? Um, I think, something like the appendix probably points, if, if I was sort of hedging my bets, which is probably an unfortunate phrase for a minister to use, but um, <laughs> it, it probably makes more sense in the scheme of some sort of guided evolution where the creator is intelligent and, and he is directed in a certain way, but he chooses to use this process to put the way forward. And so within this process, there's kind of just no reason for the appendix to go away. You know, for, for a, a mutation to kind of last, it has to be favorable for the existence of that creature. 
But even though this appendix doesn't have a purpose or doesn't have a, a purpose anymore, some people would say that maybe it used to, um, there's nothing favorable in losing it and, and that's why the mutation doesn't happen to take it away. Does that sort of answer that? Those are, those are off, very off the cuff thoughts and remarks, but um, if you were to push me and say, well, if it was instantaneous creation, then why is it there? I, I just have to say, I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. I um, have to be honest about that. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Do I think that we're still evolving then? Well, the, that's a simple yes or no, isn't it? Um, potentially. Um, to, to, to be honest, um, I'm not sure I do, and that, that's, that's, the, that's the honest thing at the start. I'm not sure that I, I do accept that, that we have um, evolved guided by God I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I do accept it. And part of the reason why I'm, I'm nervous about it is that um, when you start then getting into more of the Genesis material about Adam, for example, if we're evolved, how could there only be one Adam? How could there only be one person at the start? And then, you know, if, if you look at something like the start of Luke's gospel where it traces Jesus all the way back to Adam, then you have to say, well, no, there, there has to be an Adam. Um, some people will argue that the whole Adam and Eve stuff is also symbolic in some way of how sin came into the world. But that becomes a problem because we believe that people like Abraham and the Israelites, the nation of Israel through the Old Testament, that they were real people. So then at what part does it stop becoming symbolic and start becoming real people? So that, that's my problem with saying it was God-guided evolution. I'm not sure that we can arrive at a, an Adam um, and I'm not sure that you could escape the fact that there would maybe be, there would have to be death then in the world before Adam and death therefore before sin comes into the world. And, and that's, that's a bit problematic. So um, I, I suppose I, I wanna um, knock it back at the, at the start of your question. If we are evolved, guided by God, I'd wanna say, well, look, I'm, I'm not really sure that I would wanna accept that in the first place. But to answer your question, if we were, then yes, in theory, God could still be, God could still be guiding evolution, and, and we could be. But as I say, I, I think in the first instance, I wanna say I'm not, I'm not convinced by that. Is that okay? Sure. Thank you. Um, I was actually just discussing with Justine before I came that when people are wearing masks, sometimes it's actually very hard to see like if they like are with you or just are, like 
they're still looking at you, but I mean, maybe under here the expression is, what are you talking about? So apologies in that. Are there any? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yet, <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I mean, they're, they're sort of inconclusive, I suppose. I, I part part of what I said about God is a God who who operates outside of time, and and therefore, you know, whether six days or not is is kind of hard to. It's hard for us to ever really know. I think um, the science points to an older Earth. I'm not intimidated as a Christian by that. If God is eternal, then the earth can be however many billion years old. It's nothing to God. It's still a drop in the ocean to him. Um, but I'm not sure that I would be prepared to swear to a particular answer on it. Um, but I think even in terms of what the Bible says about when humanity came about and in terms of what science says about that, there's not actually a horrendous amount of conflict Potentially, yeah. I mean, as I say, if, if God isn't constrained by time, then, then why not? Um, I'm, I'm open to the possibility, but I'm not, I wouldn't be pushing for a hard sell on that to, to make you try and believe that. Anybody else? Yeah, go ahead, Scott. I have your question here, but you. Great. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, so, so to, to sort of speak about the Hebrew very, very briefly, that, that phrase that I said repeats, and God said, and God said, and God said, each of those um, lines begins with something which is in Hebrew called the Vav consecutive. So in Hebrew, the letter Vav is equivalent to our word and. But when the vav consecutive is used, um, and you know whether, whether it's being used because of the vowels that are used with it, um, that means that these events happen one after the other. For example, last week, that's how we knew in Daniel 2 that the events happened after Daniel's training, not during his training, because it, this, was, this is actually what's used in the Hebrew at the start of the chapter to say, and whatever, and, and it happens afterwards. So it would seem like if you were following a literal seven-day account that these things are written to be considered consecutively. So I, I would say yes, but th there's probably some interpretation there. There's some wriggle room for saying that there could be gaps between the days, but um, I think, as I say, the bigger issue for me in the literal six day or seven day account um, is, the, is, is the parallels. It's that God said, let there be light, but on day four, he made the sun. I'm not sure that God could create light without the sun, of course he could, but I'm not sure that the author really intended for us to think that. Um, is that okay? Sorry. Yes. Yes. So are you sort of referring to even Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world and so on? I, I think all of those things um, 
rather than maybe thinking of a physical space, relate to something spiritual so that, you know, this world is fallen, sin has come into this world. Um, therefore, God and the world are, in a sense, separated, and so Satan has domain in the earth. Um, I think that's more the, you know, you know it, it goes to the story of the fall and the fact that man was made in God's image, and in, in some way that meant that, that man or humanity represented God in some way, they're his image, and then they kind of forfeit that to the serpent when they fall. And I think that's why Satan has dominion in this earth, um, because we gave it to him when we, when we sinned. So that, that, that's how I understand that rather than maybe in a, in a physical space. Um, no idea. <laughs> no idea. Again, it's, it's not impossible that God couldn't create other life forms. Or he's God. He could do what he wants. If, but, I mean, I'm not convinced that they do exist currently. You're asking a surface chemist all these questions about, you know, deep theology and astrophysics and things that I, I don't know the answer to. So the other question that um, came in um, where does a non-scientist go for answering this question? So I, I realize that I talked probably too much about um, evolution and mutations and natural selection and examples um, of things evolving. Um, so where does a non-scientist go for answering this question? And I presume the question is, can I really believe there is a God? Um, I suppose my, my remit tonight was to argue this from a scientist's point of view, so it's maybe hard not to go, not to go to science. But I think even, you know, what we read in Psalm um, 19 probably goes a long way. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God; the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Just on on a really simple, I'd answer that on a really simple level, which is maybe what I should have done tonight, um, and just say, look, can you really believe that all this beauty? all that we see in the world around us. I mean, go to somewhere like, uh, I don't know, the Victoria Falls or, or the Grand Canyon or s somewhere that's immense like that um, and just ask yourself, really, by chance, do you think so? I, I, I'm not convinced by that. So I think I, I would probably, uh, maybe that's just science light, maybe rather than science full-blown, um, but that's probably, in, specifically in relation to that question. And, the other way you could go is just share your testimony, tell them what God has done for you. I mean, that, that obviously that's a very different direction from where we've gone tonight. Um, but I suspect most of us here tonight believe in God because we have some experience of what he has done in our lives. And that, that's never a bad place to go if, a, if, a, if somebody comes up to you um, with this question. Um, I suppose the, you always get pushed back then with, but, but how do you know, how do you know that was God? But I mean, you, you tell your life story, you tell your circumstances, and again, like the beautiful things in nature, you say, do you, do you really think this could have happened um, if there wasn't a God? I'm gonna stop the Q&A now, and Scott, you can decide whether next week you want to do a Q&A after the end of your talk. <laughs> He's uh, shaking his head. <laughs> I'll do one the next time, it's fine. It's totally fine. Um, let's pray together just before we close. Father, we thank you for the world, for all that is in it, for all that is beautiful that you've given us to enjoy. And Lord, we confess that no matter how much we know about that world, our knowledge is ultimately nothing compared to yours. 
None of us, no matter how bright or clever, could ever understand how you spoke and things came to be. We just can't comprehend you in your power and your might. But even so, we thank you for what you've done in showing us something of that power and might in the world around us. Thank you for science, for human knowledge, for all the things that you have given us through that. So many things that make our lives better in technology, in the medical world. But thank you most of all that we can know you and love you and trust you. And so we lay our knowledge and our questions and our frustrations at your feet. And we trust that by your grace, you will help us to trust you more fully and more deeply through Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.